if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4. We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 4 tonight. Familiar story. We're going to begin in verse 35. And it says there, And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I'm sure they said it with more emphasis than that. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? And how is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And let's pray. Father, I ask that once again you will magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we open up the word and that we can see him in a greater dimension in our lives and make application to that in our Christian walk. And I thank you that you'll do that for us tonight in Jesus' name. This is a true story. There was this man and he took his little boy with him on a business trip to Istanbul, Turkey. And they're sitting in a restaurant and they look out a window and to their surprise and disbelief, they see this big, huge brown bear that has been declawed. And he's muzzled and they have him on a leash. And so finally a crowd gathers around. They want to see what is the deal with this bear. And his owner took a tambourine and started shaking it. And the bear rolled over on his back, stood up, Got on all fours again. The owner shakes the tambourine again, and the bear stands up and starts dancing around on his back feet. So everybody's applauding, thinks it's great. The tambourine becomes a collection plate, passing that thing around, and suddenly this little small mongrel dog comes running out from around a building and starts barking at the brown bear. Well, that brown bear with one swipe of his paw could have destroyed that mongrel dog. But instead, he's like helpless and terrified and just was running away from that little dog, this big brown bear trying to find a place to hide. So what's the problem with that brown bear at that point? He's got two issues that are causing him to act like that. And one is he's muzzled, and the other is he's declawed. He's lost all his defenses. And so he's got a little dog chasing him around. And that's a picture of mankind today. So man was designed by God, created by God to be a magnificent creature like the bear. And Psalm 8, it says this, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. And listen to what it says. You made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, it speaks of Jesus, but it really speaks of God's purpose in creating us. So we were created by God to serve him and to rule over his creation, to rule over earth. But through the fall, we lost it all. And now we are like that clawless, toothless bear. So life circumstances, it should be to us no more than that little dog would be to that bear if he was walking around like he should be now causes great fear. And so mankind I'm speaking of, so I'm not talking about believing Christians with the power of the Holy Spirit, but just mankind in general has become helpless against the forces of darkness. And mankind, men, need help. And so who can provide hope? 
Where's the power that's greater than any situation? So should we be like the disciples that we just read about that cry out, don't you care that we perish? Should that be the way we should be? When you read these accounts of the disciples, in a sense I'd say we ought to be grateful for them because they have to display all their problems on the page of the gospel for us to read about down through the centuries, right? And I mean, really, praise God that he's got it in there because we see ourselves in their lives, right? And we can learn from how they learned, right? It helps us out in that way. And so we go into this text here. We look in verse 35, and after a full day of preaching, the evening has come, and Jesus gives a command. And what is the command he gives there at the end of verse 35? He says, let us pass over unto the other side. Now here's the thing, this was not a request. It's not like he's saying, hey fellas, you know, what do you think? You want to take a boat ride? You know, he's not really asking their opinion. <laughs> In Matthew's account, it says this, now when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart to the other side. It was a command. He gave orders to depart. And that's important. That's what he told him. What are the disciples doing when they put him in the boat and they get in the boat with him and they head to the other side? What are they doing? They're simply obeying the Lord Jesus's commands that he had given them to do. They're doing God's will, right? But what happens? And this is what we need to see. God's will many times is going to do what? It's going to lead you into trouble. There's no sin involved here at all. They're just obeying what the Lord told them to do right into trouble. And we see that all through the Bible. But you go back to Exodus 14, back in the Exodus, and it says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pi-Harithrah, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon. And before it you shall encamp by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So what do we have there? The Lord spake unto Moses, and he says, I want you to take the children of Israel, and he, it's a command, they don't have an option, and you take them right on the Red Sea where they have no place to go. And if I can say it this way, God was setting them up leading them into circumstances that were going to be desperate. So it's an order, just like Jesus said, get into the boat and go to the other side. He's ordering them to go to the Red Sea, nowhere else to go, and he's going to make sure that Pharaoh comes after him. That's what he says. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, that he'll come after you. And so this is what I'm saying. Many times, obeying God will lead us into desperate trouble. Have we found that out in our lives? It happened to me many times, right? But it's not to destroy us. It's not to discourage us, right? But to teach us of his great power and salvation. That's what he said. And he also said it's going to bring glory to his name. And so when you look at verse 36, after that, he sends the multitude away. And look what it says. And when he had sent the multitude away, it says they took him even as he was in the ship. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would that be in there, even as he was? Isn't that kind of a funny expression? They took him in the ship even as he was. So how was he? What does that mean, even as he was? Well, think about it. He's been preaching all day. He's a tired, weary man. After a full day of preaching, I'm telling you, if you've ever preached, if you were going to preach all day long, which is what he did, it's draining. 
And that's what they're seeing. They look at it like we're taking him as he is. And all they're seeing Jesus is, is a man that gets tired just like they do. That's what they're seeing there when they put him in that boat. And so what we know, though, is Jesus was fully God. But we've talked about this. He was also what? Fully man. And he would get worn out just like any man would. Just like any of us would. If he worked all day, he'd be tired at the end of the day. So I picture them, they're probably helping him in the boat. Because it's an odd expression there, too, when it says, when they had sent them away, the multitude, they took him. That's generally not the way it's said. It's usually he's taking them somewhere. I see them helping him in, and he's getting in the back of the boat, and he is just bone tired. And I could see him saying, you know, excuse me, gentlemen, I just need to lay down for a few minutes and get a power nap. I mean, he wasn't going to be sleeping all night just going across the lake like that. And it says this in Luke's account, Luke 8. Luke's version of this story, it says, as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. You know, those boats back then, they could have either sails or they could have oars. And I could just, that rhythmic sound of those oars, that water up against there, next thing you know, he's gone to sleep. And could you just picture him there in that boat, his head on a pillow, totally vulnerable and at ease. There he is. There's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have what happens in verse 37. A storm hits. And what does it say? There arose a great storm of wind. And what that is telling us is this storm hit with violence. It came in there in a hard way. It's the Greek equivalent, what that word is there, for a hurricane. That's where the word hurricane was used back in the day. And so the Sea of Galilee, it was known for these windstorms that would hit suddenly and violently. And then it goes on to say, arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship. And those waves, they figure, were probably 8 to 10 feet high. Now, that's pretty high waves coming at you through that fierce storm that's, that's all of a sudden come upon them. And it says their boat was filling up rapidly. At the very end there, it says, so that it was now full. So who sent that wind? Who sent that wind that just came in there? Was it just a natural thing that happened, right? So I believe that Satan was the source of that wind, but God is in control of the circumstances. And we see that, don't we? This is not unfamiliar to us all. We have that in Job 1. So God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan answered him, well, he just serves you because it pays. He says, you take that hedge of protection around him, and he'll curse you to his face. And the Lord told Satan, he says, behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And what was one of the things Satan did with permission from God? It says, a man comes and tells Job, thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold... There came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So it says there in the account, it, it was a big wind, a great wind that came from the wilderness and that's how a scientist would describe it, right? But we know from the behinds the scenes, where was the source of that wind? It wasn't from the wilderness, it was from where? It was from the devil. It was from Satan. So I believe it's the same here. The source of this storm that is hitting them in this boat is Satan, and that's why Jesus rebuked it. So he's speaking to that spirit that's behind the storm. It's the same word rebuked that was used in Mark 1.25 when it says he rebuked a demon that was crying out of that man in the synagogue. 
So God's using, though, this storm. I'm saying that the source is the devil, but God is in control. And why is he using this storm? He's got a purpose that he wants to have fulfilled, doesn't he? And that's what it says in the Word. Psalm 148 says, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his Word. So many times God will use the forces of nature to fulfill his Word. It's all through the, the Bible, Old and New Testament. So God's in control of these circumstances, but they are life-threatening nonetheless. I mean, this is a real life-threatening situation. It's not a game. These men are truly in danger of drowning. And at least four of the men would have been all too familiar. We know four of them were fishermen. The first four that were called, right, by the lake, they were fishermen. They'd have been all too familiar with these storms that would come down on that lake and how violent they were and how somebody could get killed easily. At this point in the story, they're having to do something. They're having to choose between what they know happens when storms hit on the lake and what they're experiencing. They're experiencing one of them right now and what Jesus had ordered them to do. They got to make a choice. Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. And do you realize that that is a promise? Because the promise is in the command. It's implied, right? The other side will be reached if they obey. It's not just their boat. There are other boats going along with them. And they're all obeying the Lord. Going over to the other side. So... You know, another example of that is the blind man in John 9. What did he tell him? He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Doesn't say anything about his eyes being healed, does it? That's what he told him to do. So the promise was in the command. If he'll obey that command, then he'll receive his sight. And that's why we have what Paul talks about in Romans, the obedience of faith. Right? The Lord gives us something to do. A lot of times it's the way. And you obey that and the promise is in the command. We have to obey what he says, even though a lot of times it's going to bring us into trouble. Might even see it coming a lot of times, right? But Hebrews 11, you think about that. It's filled with men and women that received promises and commands. You know, he told Abraham, he said, I just want you to leave that land. It says he obeyed, not even knowing where he's going, Right? filled with that. They believed them, those people in, in Hebrews 11, and accepted them, and then everything goes wrong. The storms come, just like we have here, comes with their lives. And what are those storms? What do we call the storms that come because we're obeying God? They're called trials of our faith. Are they not a pretty basic thing here? But they're allowed and sent from God. So listen, he permits the fierce winds and waves to come crashing over our heads. And we can be in real jeopardy by trusting him and by obeying him. Can't we? We can be in real jeopardy. And what's happening here is the circumstances of this storm, they're coming between Jesus' command and promise and the fulfillment. And they're overwhelming. Overwhelming. Because all these guys can see in that boat is the storm. They've lost sight of the promise. Right? And sometimes it's hard to get past the circumstances, isn't it? I think it is. A lot of times we can lose sight of that. If you would turn back to Psalm 107, Psalm 107 beginning in verse 23, and this basically describes what we're reading here in this account in Mark. Psalm 107 beginning in verse 23, it says, They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands... 
and raises the stormy wind. Well, it makes it sound like it came from the Lord, doesn't it? But he's not literally commanding in that sense directly. It's he commands the devil and raises a stormy wind which lifts up the waves thereof. And they mount up to the heaven and they go down again to the depths. And this is what those guys were experiencing. High waves up and down and it says their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro, verse 27, and stagger like a drunken man, and they are at their wit's end. Have you ever been there? And then it says, they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. And then they are glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them into their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. So who's the one that sent that storm when we just read that psalm? It says the Lord sent it, didn't he? He sent that storm just so he could get somebody in a desperate situation and at their wit's end to where they cry out to him. And then he's magnified in the deliverance he gets. And he says he brings them into their desired haven. Because at one point it sure didn't look like they were going to make it. Sure didn't look like they were going to make it. But God is faithful. And so what we need to see is he's promised us this. He's promised us storms. We can't get in the Christian walk and think we're not going to have any trouble. We're going to have a life free from trouble. He's promised us just the opposite of that. And Jesus said in John 16, in the world you shall have tribulation. But he says, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And just like he's with them and got them through that, he'll do the same for us when we get in trials, right? And like I like what a man says. So he's told us ahead of time it's coming. And you just don't know when, do we? And we need to live ready. We always need to live ready. Because for me, whenever I've had a big trial, it comes out of nowhere. Just like that wind, doesn't it? You least expect it. But everybody in here gets them. We just don't know when. It'll hit this person over here, somebody over there a month later, boom, boom, boom. But it happens. It's guaranteed. In the world, he says, you are going to have tribulation, but don't let it get you down. Be of good cheer. He says, I've overcome the world. I'm the one that lives in you. I'm the one that will help you. So we obey the word and we decide to trust him for healing, deliverance, finances. We got a child that's wayward and we're going to trust him for that. A mate. We got a lot of single people in here. What should you be trusting God for? You should be trusting God for a mate that believes and has a heart for God. I would say that believes the same as what you do in here, whatever that is. I wouldn't want to believe. I'm just saying once you get married and you've got differences on what you believe about raising kids, healing, non-resistance, you name the issue, you're going to have issues down the way. A mate that has a heart for God, a freedom from some besetting sin. What is it that we're obeying him about? Trying to, to serve him and obey him. And all of a sudden, everything goes berserk. <laughs> you got problems. Everything gets out of hand and it's desperate. And you're holding on. And it seems like, man, I've been holding on to this. I'm getting too old to get married. I feel like, you know, it's getting past age, you know, and you're getting desperate. Right? A lot of time. Something's got to give. And you're looking for Jesus. Where is he? He gave me these promises. Says he'll do this and that for me. I'm holding on to it. Where is he? You look for Jesus like the disciples. And where is he? Look at Mark 4, verse 38. And it says... This storm came in in verse 37, and he, Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. That's where he is, asleep on a pillow. I don't think it was the famous my pillow. 
Don't think it was one of those. Probably not quite that comfortable, right? But he is asleep. And the whole time he's asleep, I mean, he's just got rest in his father, doesn't he? He fell asleep before the storm came in. And that's a biblical picture there. We sing that Psalm 3. All lay me down and sleep. There's all kinds of stuff going on around the psalmist. We sing that Psalm, psalm 3, right? The waves are filling up the boat. And these disciples are what? They are in a panic, a total panic. Okay, so that boat, I meant to walk off what it would be. Those boats, they found one. You go over to Israel. Do you see it, Miss Hamilton? It's pretty neat, isn't it? So it was in the 80s. They actually uncovered this guy. He was always looking for stuff. Archaeological finds there. He found a boat, and they unearthed that thing, and it's 27 feet long. I believe it's 8 feet wide, and it's 4 and a half feet deep. Now, 27 feet long, that's a pretty good stretch. I walked it off of my house. I'm like, wow, that is long. And those boats were designed to hold 15 people. So they're not out there in a canoe. You know, I mean, sometimes I've just pictured as little, it's not a canoe, it's a big, long boat is what they're in. So, I mean, there's a little bit of space between these guys, but, you know, it'll hold 15 people, and we got, you know, at least 12 in there. But I'm saying, I don't think they had this calm meeting with each other, you know, they're all getting together while this storm's going on, and, well, let's see which one of us is going to go wake up Jesus. Yeah, he can be a little touchy at times, not really, you know, and they're going to draw straws to decide. No, I don't think it went like that. I think they are all petrified. They look over there and there's Jesus sleeping. And I think they yelled to whoever was closest to him. Hey, Bartholomew, would you wake him up? (laughs) What's he doing? My God, how's he sleeping when this is going on? I'm sure that's what they were saying. This is crazy. How can he be sleeping? You know, and it sounds, if you remember, doesn't that sound like what? Sounds a lot like Jonah. Sleeping down below while that great storm was going on to sink the ship. And the captain goes down there like, he's probably, where is everybody? Where's Jonah at? Maybe he fell over. Oh, no, I find him down. He's down below the ship, fast asleep is what it says. And here he, the captain, gets to him and wakes him up and says, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon thy God. So there's a lot of similarities between the story of Jonah and what's going on here, except that Jonah was in a storm for his sin, and Jesus had never sinned, never did sin. And Jonah, how did the sea had to be calm? They had to toss him into the waters for the sea to be calm, right? They didn't do that with Jesus. The only thing he had to do is he spoke a word, and the sea was calmed. And Jesus said what about himself? A greater than Jonah is here, and that's the truth, right? And that's what we see in that story. So what do they say to him here at the end? Look what they say. They find him asleep, and they say unto him, look at these words at the end of verse 38, Master, carest thou not that we perish? That's what they're crying out. It's like they're saying, have you no concern? We're going to be destroyed. And I think they're partially pleading with him, and I think they're partially being sarcastic when they're saying that, right? But let me ask you, have you ever experienced that? You're in a trial, a severe trial, a long trial, an intense trial, and it just doesn't seem like God is the least bit concerned with what's happening to you. Have you ever been there? It just seems like he doesn't care. He's not doing anything about it. doesn't seem to care that I'm in dire straits and it is getting worse. And that's what they're seeing there. They're asking him that. Remember Gideon when we talked about Gideon? Those people had been plundered and driven from their homes for seven years. And the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnate Christ, he appears to Gideon and he says this to him. He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. 
And what was Gideon's response to that, right? He's like, really? The Lord is with us? Well, he sure has a funny way of demonstrating that. Because here's what he went on to say. He says, if the Lord is with us, Judges 6.13, and why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And Gideon said this, now the Lord has abandoned us. He doesn't care. He's not around. He's abandoned us. And sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? Let's be honest about it. He's abandoned us and doesn't seem to care. Now, that's what the disciples are saying here, isn't it? Look at the end of that, verse 38 again. Master, carest thou not that we perish, that we're perishing? Now look, the word for care is not the word for worry and anxiety. Like when we sing that song, I will cast all my cares upon him. That's not the word that's being used here. That's not what he's talking about. When Jesus says that the cares of the world will choke the word, that's not this word. Not the same word. So they're not asking Jesus, why aren't you worried about the fact that we're going to die? They're asking him, why don't you have any concern about our welfare? That's what that word care means there. Why aren't we an object of your concern, Lord, that you're just sleeping and we're all going to die? And I think that can be the real trial of our faith. The fact that God permits us, he's the one we know, he's in control, permits us to get in circumstances, the ones we're in, over our head, and then he appears to be quite unconcerned about it. And I'm emphasizing the word appears to be, right? And that's the question, isn't it, sometimes that we wrestle with. Does Jesus care? Because there's a song, an old hymn that's written, it's a great old hymn. And that's the title of it, Does Jesus Care? And it goes like this. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? And the answer to that's in the course. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. And the second verse says this, Does Jesus care when my way is dark with nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? And the answer is, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. And that's the hardest time of our trials, the long nights. That's when the devil comes after us the hardest. Telling you the Lord's not there, what are you doing, you're crazy, da-da-da-da-da, right? You know, this has been a long time ago. Thomas was just a wee little man back then. And he got really sick. And for days, couldn't get him to eat or drink. And he's not moving much, and I'm seeing his ribs coming through his back. And I'm telling you, for me, at that time, it seemed like the waves were coming over me and filling my boat, and I was about ready to drown. That's the way it was. And it's like, Lord, do you not care? That's what you're dealing with then. And I actually listened to a tape of Brother Hamilton. I went out and worked. I said, I've got to go out and work just to get my mind away from what I'm seeing all the time, right? Listen to when he taught on that boy, the epileptic boy and the man. And it really encouraged put me in tears. And the man cried out, if you can do anything, have compassion. Do you care, Lord?
Why are you asking me all these questions? I need to get him healed. You're asking me all these questions. If you can have compassion, he said, on us, help us. That's what he said. And God will bring us to our wit's end like we read about in Psalm 107 many times. He'll do that. Bring us to our wit's end so that we will cry out to him in our distress. We need you, Lord. Do you care? Can you help me? Right? And I'm telling you, get home from work. I believe this when it happened. I didn't check the details with my wife. It's been a few years back. Started eating. And you just had God just put that thing in your heart. It's going to be all right, despite how it looks. And it was. I think you go all right. Your ribs still showing. <laughs> you know what happens, though, in verse 38, in response to their plea for help? What does he do in verse 39? He rises up and he rebukes the wind and speaks to the sea and tells it to be calm. Verse 39, he arose and he rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And what's he doing? He's demonstrating his authority as the Son of God, walking in the power of the Spirit. That's where his power came from. He's the new race of man, the second Adam. Like we said before, man has been stripped of his dominion by the devil, gave it over to him. And Jesus is the new race, the Spirit-filled believer. New race of man he's starting here. That's what's going on. Showing us the dominion and the power that God intended for man when he created him. And Jesus is showing that he is the Lord, the anointed Messiah. Listen to Psalm 89, 8-9, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? Or to thy faithfulness round about thee. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Psalm 89, prophesying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is a strong Lord like unto thee? When the waves arise, you still them. He's showing, that's me. I'm the one. Right? When he speaks, it says, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. In contrast to a great storm of wind. Totally night and day difference with what we're seeing there. A raging trial. And after that raging trial they were in, a great calm. And it wasn't over time. It was in a matter of seconds. So the wind dies down and the sea is like glass. The boat is no longer rocking. And he asked them a question in verse 40. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He asked him two questions. Why are you so fearful? You think about that. When is he asking him that question? Everything is totally calm, right? And they're probably just looking at him after that, staring at him with their mouths hanging wide open. <laughs> they're probably thinking, did I just see and experience what I thought I just saw and experienced? <laughs> They're saying to themselves, why was I so fearful? He's asking, well, I mean, the circumstances kind of seemed to dictate it at the time, <laughs> you know, that it was okay to be fear. But look at everything now. They're probably thinking while he's asking them that, why are you so fearful? They're probably a little bit embarrassed because it's calm as glass. Probably thinking, why was I so fearful? And then they're saying, who is this man? He's much more than I ever realized. Uh, even when I signed on to follow him, much more than that, he could control a storm like this? Never met anybody like that. And those questions that he's asking them, in a sense, he's rebuking them. But really, what's he doing? He's teaching them. 
He is. And you know, in verse 38, when it says that they woke him up, you know what it says they did? What did they call him? Master. Carest thou not that we perish? The word for master is didaskalos. It's a Greek word that means teacher. They're saying teacher. Because it's used in Hebrews 5.12 for when you ought to be teachers. The exact same word. So they're getting it right. Teacher, don't you care that we perish? They're getting it right when they woke him up because he was being their teacher. That's what this is all about. This experience isn't for him, it's for them. He's teaching them through their failure. So he's asking them, why are you so fearful? He's saying, now that you see what I did and who I am and I'm with you, he's asking them, do you really need to react like you did? That's what he's asking them. Why are you so fearful? There's no need to be. That's what that question is all about. There is no need to be as fearful as you were. Because look what I just did. That's what's behind that. And then he asked a second question. What is the second question there? How is it that you have no faith? And literally, that is three words in the Greek. And if you read it, a literal translation, just the way the order it's in, it would be not yet have faith. That's how it would read. So that's why they put it in a translation. How is it that you have no faith? Because not yet faith, we don't talk like that. Sounds like a robot. But that's what it's saying. Not yet have faith. So he's asking, why don't you have faith yet? He's asking these guys. You've seen a lot. You've seen a lot going. So I don't know if you remember when we taught this, how long have these guys been walking with the Lord Jesus Christ up at this point? Does anybody remember? Two years. They got just a little over a year left. So they've been walking with him for two years and they've seen him heal multitudes, cast out spirits, cleanse a leper, make a paralytic walk, restore a withered hand. They should have had confidence. That's what he's saying. Why is it you don't have faith yet? They should have more confidence and trust in him with what all they've seen him do. And he's telling them, listen, he's saying, if you would just meditate, think about what you've seen and apply it to your present situation, you'd have confidence that I'd take care of it. That's what's behind that question. And, you know, we talked about that Sunday in that prayer of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9. That's what that was all about, wasn't it? In that prayer, he's saying, look back at God's faithfulness, his power in creation, calling you out of darkness, his great power in redeeming you from Egypt, his love and faithfulness to you despite your sins and failures. Look back on that is what he's saying and be prepared and blessed and encouraged for the future. And that's what Jesus is telling these guys. Not yet faith. You should be looking back and thinking about everything. It's just not registering with them. Every new circumstance is like a new thing and they're dealing with it like they always had. So he's saying, not yet faith. You need to look back to be encouraged for the future because even though it says here, how is it that you have no faith? He's not telling them that they don't have faith. He's saying they're acting like they have no faith. In Matthew's account, he says this, the same account, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? So he's not saying they had no faith, they just had a little faith, enough to wake him up. They had that much faith, right? In Luke's account, Jesus said this, he asked them, where is your faith? And the implication there again is they had faith, they just weren't using what they had. Now that's what we used to hear. You've got to exercise the faith that you have and say, don't say I don't have any faith. Jesus isn't telling them that. We've got to exercise the faith we have because faith just isn't this automatic thing, is it? It's not automatic. And so when circumstances are overwhelming you, you have to apply faith to the situation, don't you? It's not going to just automatically be there, right? 
And faith reasons this way, like Abraham did. I see the waves, and I can feel that wind, but, and you say, but what? As Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, but what? But God has promised. That's but what, didn't he? <laughs> That's what Abraham did. I'm looking at me and Sarah. It's crazy. But God has made me a promise, given me his word. But I see the winds and the waves. But the Lord Jesus Christ has loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 5.10 says, We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That word for saved means healed. It means deliverance. It means everything he's going to give us. He was willing to die for us and we will be saved much more by his life. And so to exercise faith, what do we need to do? You've got to focus faith on the circumstances you're facing. You've got to tell yourself, look, I know this about God. I've experienced this much. He's almighty, compassionate, faithful. I know it's true. And I'm going to put that on these circumstances that I'm facing right now. I'm going to trust him fully. You have to see God's will and promise for your life. And then exercise trust. Commit yourself to it. And hold on. Right? You can't have faith if you're not committed. Faith is saying, I have something. And I'm committed to the fact that I have it. There's no way I can't have it because I've got God's word on it. Amen? Amen. That's the way faith works. You don't just all of a sudden not have it when you had it. Right? You got to hold on and not let go. Refuse to let go because we can trust the word of our God. Can't we? Amen. Amen. We really can. The centurion said this to Jesus. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And what had he done? He'd heard reports of Jesus. He'd probably seen Jesus heal. He's not a Jew, but he sized up the Lord. And then he applied it to his situation. He said, man, I've seen you operate. I've seen what you've done for others. And I've got a situation right now. I'm applying that. I've got a sick and dying servant that means a lot to me. I need what you've got. And I know what it means to submit to authority. You're under the authority of God and you speak the word. It will happen. That's what he said. Just speak your word only because he saw the word of Jesus carried power. Saw it happen. He'd speak healing. He'd speak to cast out demons and he's just speaking and it's happening. He said, that's all I need is that. Just a word. Speak the word only and it's done. And he heard that coming from a Roman. Jesus did, not a Jew. And it says that he what? He marveled, wondered. Wow. And he said, verily, I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith. Not here. Not where I should have found it. Not where I should have found it. I didn't find it. Found it somewhere else. That's what the Lord's saying. And he's not asking that guy like he did the disciples. He's not asking the centurion, where is your faith? The centurion's got it out of his pocket and he's exercising it. And he hadn't had that, all those background years of having the word like they did in Israel. 1 John 5 says this, This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, according to his word, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we desired of him. 
So it ends up here on verse 41. What does it say? And they feared after they see what happened. And he asked him that question. It says they feared exceedingly and said one to another, well, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're seeing him for who he really is at this point, right? We said they saw him at the beginning. He's just a tired man, helped him in the boat, fell right asleep. But they're realizing now that is not all there is to him. No, he is Lord of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so they saw and experienced his power. And wouldn't that be a greater call to greater commitment? Wouldn't it be that once they've seen that? Isn't that what they're getting out of this? A call to greater commitment once they see who he is. So they'd left all to follow the Messiah. They knew he was a great teacher, anointed to heal, cast out spirits. But they're looking at this. What kind of man can command the elements? So they say, hey, he is Lord over creation. And it says they are in all of him. It says they feared exceedingly. That is the equivalent of us saying they were terrified of him. They're in all of this man. That just a little bit ago, they're saying, don't you care we perish talking to him like that? They aren't talking to him like that anymore. <laughs> it says they're terrified. They're afraid of him. So he's sleeping during that tremendous storm, woke up and just speaks a word to the sea and the wind. And the impossible happens. Sudden calm. And they are in awe of that. I would be too. Seeing that. We have to ask our question to us then. What commitment should we make to this man? He's forever the God man. Forever. What kind of commitment should we make? It's a question we've got to ask ourselves, right? Isn't that why we're going through here? That's why Mark wrote this gospel, that we could see who Jesus is. Magnify who he is, the Lord that we're putting our trust in. We're experiencing the same things in our trials that these disciples experienced. I have through my life. Haven't always done well. Sometimes I have by the grace of God. But that's how we can learn, right? And let me just say this. May God open our eyes to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ because he promises that that power we see exercised here, he'll exercise to us today. Because it says in Ephesians, Paul prayed this, that we may know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Can you give me an amen? amen. That's what Paul said, amen. And that's who we serve, amen? Well, let's take courage from his word. Let's pray. And Father, I thank you, first of all, Lord, for the word that you've given us here and these examples of these disciples that we can learn from and that we can see ourselves, Lord. We've experienced the things they've experienced. And we've struggled with the things they struggle with. And we've questioned sometimes, Lord, are you really with us? Because the circumstances don't always indicate it, but yet you are. You say all things work together for our good if we love you and we're called of you. You will make all things work together for good. So we thank you, Lord, that you are the Lord of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth. 
And we thank you that you will and are in control of our trials and you will deliver us if we'll just hold on to you, Lord, and walk in holiness. And I thank you for that. And thank you for what you've shown us in your word tonight. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.